Thanks, Pastor Charlie. If you have your Bibles this morning, if you want to go ahead and turn to Galatians 5, Galatians chapter 5, that's where we'll be. Um, and before we look there, just a word of thanks as well to Brother Nathan and Sister Amy for the time, the energy, the devotion you put into leading us in worship. It is such a treat to have Christ-centered, gospel-focused songs uh, in, our, in our gathering. And I think you guys will see, I love that song, Show Us Christ, a beautiful prayer, and it will fit nicely with this text this morning. So Galatians chapter 5, I'm going to pick up uh, where Pastor Tim left off a couple weeks ago. Uh, but before we, before we look there, let me just say a good morning and happy new year to each of you. We're now, this is our first gathering in the new year, right? So happy new year to everyone. And with the new year comes a time when many of us do some reflection, right? We think about our goals, our life, where we are, where we want to be going. And so now as we turn our attention to God's Word this morning, I want you to consider a few questions with me. What is it that you are known for? What's the distinguishing mark on your life? If the history books were written today, what would be your legacy? Our culture idolizes those with unique talents and gifts, lavish riches. Uh, this often defines who they are. Cam Newton, for example, is known for his ability to both pass and run. Kelly Clarkson is known for her ability to sing. Tom Hanks is known as a good actor, playing in a diversity of Hollywood roles. Tony Romo is known for having a lot of talent, but thus far, not a lot of results. Some of you are surprised. Glenn Short, Brother Glenn, I see you smirking over there at my knowledge of these professional athlete examples. If I'm inaccurate, you can see me afterwards. We're all known for something. This is a rarely, if ever, debated proposition. The real question is, what are we most known for? Are we known for what matters? This is more often contested. And the question we must ask ourselves as believers in Jesus Christ is whether or not our lives are making a difference for eternity. The spiritual fruit that we produce here by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, it impacts the kingdom of God, a kingdom that has no end. Therefore, this is the only impact, the only impact that really counts. I have one main point. Tech guys, I don't know if you got my PowerPoint, but if you have it, um, I've got one main point that I hope we see and walk away with this morning, and that's this. Sons and daughters of the King are continually amazed by grace and consistently marked by love. Sons and daughters of the King, we never graduate from grace and we're consistently marked by love. Let me pray. Father God, I do pray that you help us now as we turn our attention to your word. Lord, would you speak to us through your spirit, uh, through your word. And Lord, change our hearts. Use us for the advancement of your kingdom. We pray it in Christ's name. When Pastor Tim finished up last time in the book of Galatians, he ended in chapter 5, verse 16. But I want us, as I was studying this passage and trying to wrestle with where to stop, I want us to pick back up in verse 13, chapter 5, verse 13, as this emphasis on love and love being the fulfillment of the law continues through chapter 5 and into chapter 6. So Paul writing Galatians 5, verse 13, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, 
but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Paul's concern for the Galatians was that they not continue being led astray by the necessity of circumcision. Pastor Tim has covered that thoroughly. In Christ now, they were free. But this freedom, it wasn't a freedom void of limits or restrictions or boundaries, direction. Paul wanted the Galatians to see that now in Christ it was possible to fulfill the law in loving as Christ loved. True freedom for the Christian is found in loving God with your entire being and loving your neighbor as yourself. That's only when we're truly free, when we fulfill the greatest commandments. Distinctively Christian love is drastically different from worldly love. It's more than mere affection. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said this, It's not a state of the feelings, but of the will. That state of the will which we naturally have about ourselves, but we must learn to have about other people. So Lewis says that instead of thinking of love as a feeling, we should think of it as determining to seek the good for others that we naturally seek for ourselves. True love includes God as part of the equation. Apart from Him, it's incomplete. Soren Kierkegaard was a 19th century philosopher, theologian, and Christian psychologist, and he made the following keen insights into love being the fulfillment of the law. He says this, Worldly wisdom is of the opinion that love is a relationship between persons. Christianity teaches that love is a relationship between a person, God, a person. That is, that God is the middle term. However beautiful a relationship of love has been between two people or among many, however complete all their desire and all their bliss have been for themselves in mutual sacrifice and devotion, even though everyone has praised this relationship, if God and the relationship with God have been omitted, then this in the Christian sense has not been love, but a mutually defraudation of love. To love God is to love oneself truly. To help another person to love God is to love another person. And to be helped by another person to love God is to be loved. Love is about getting people to God. It's about getting them to Christ. I have three subpoints this morning. And each subpoint is an example of how we can cooperate with the Spirit of God in getting others to Christ. We most truly love others when we help them to see Christ as infinitely valuable and worthy of all our worship. We most truly, genuinely love others when we help them to see Christ, the infinite value that He is, the one who's worthy of all our worship. So my three points here, the first one uh, we'll see in 11 verses here, 5, 16 through 26, that those who are made alive by the Spirit keep in step with the Spirit. Those made alive by the Spirit keep in step with the Spirit. Point two is those who are made alive by the Spirit are willing to gently restore. And point three, those made alive by the Spirit bear one another's burdens. I'll cover those last two as we get to them. But those, those are the three points that I think drive us to, to this overarching point, that overarching statement I gave you at the beginning. This is how we love others. It's how we fulfill the law. Let's look at verse 16. 
that we are made alive by the Spirit and we're to keep in step with the Spirit. But I say walk by the Spirit and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Paul was fully aware that in Christ he was a new creation. Think here of Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. He was one who was formerly dead spiritually, but now made alive by the Spirit. And yet, his struggle with the flesh continued. This word for flesh here, the Greek word sarx, it's not a reference to the physical body here, but instead the sinful, unredeemed heart. These verses, they sound very similar to what we read uh, earlier from Paul in Romans 7. In Christ, we no longer bear the penalty for our sin. We're no longer slaves to sin, but we do still battle indwelling sin. That is the sin that still dwells within our members. We all wrestle with ungodly passions and desires. We wrestle against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul goes on further to describe the works of the flesh. Verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. We see here this unredeemed nature manifests itself in four, four main ways here, if, if we grouped all this in four distinct categories, if you will. Our sexuality, perverted religion, or occult pagan practices, antisocial behavior, fits of anger, jealousy, rage, rivalries, dissension, and then substance abuse, both alone and corporate. A common theme that we see in the works of the flesh is the self-centered nature. According to Paul, to consistently indulge the flesh means forfeiting the kingdom of God. We all still struggle with sin. We regularly need to confess and receive the pardon that's available to us in Christ. That's why we have that intentional time in our service each week so we can do that. But, 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 our orientation has changed. We're no longer slaves to sin. We have a new disposition. We're now oriented toward God and the things of God. We're now alive in Christ. Those who consistently indulge the flesh, what they do is they demonstrate that they're still dead spiritually. They're still dead in their sin. But in contrast, those who have been made alive by the Spirit keep in step with the Spirit. What does this look like? Paul goes further and, and tells us, verse 22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now I find it interesting here that Paul uses fruit in the singular and not fruits. The fruit of the Spirit. And so the implication is that as the Spirit works in our lives, the result is a particular character with various qualities and facets. Tim Keller 
is very insightful in his uh, commentary on the book of Galatians. In talking about this, he says that if you lack a certain quality, you lack the fruit. For example, if, if I'm kind and gentle, but I'm not joyful and faithful, then I'm not demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit. Instead, my kindness, my gentleness, that's just Chad's more natural bent. It's only the supernatural work of the Spirit that produces the fruit of the Spirit. All the facets. This, this overall Christ-like character. Remember again too here the context of this letter. Who was Paul writing to? He was writing to churches that were in interpersonal conflict. The fruit of the Spirit works in us to bring about harmony, peace in relationships. It's not individualistic. It's not destructively competitive. Instead, it builds others up. It creates others-centered love. Allow me, if you will, for just a minute to offer off a series of rapid-fire questions for you and me to think about, to consider as we think, you know, do our lives line up? Are they in step with the Spirit? is how we're living getting others to Jesus. Are we known for our love? Do we serve others with gladness regardless of what they can do for us in return? Do we exude joy? Is there a passion in you and me for God and the things of God that's evident to those with whom we come in contact? This doesn't need to be a fake happiness where we just act like everything's always good and fine when at times things are not good and fine. But it's also not a constant state of being flat and dull and boring. In Christ, we're alive. We have hope, the hope of eternal life. So we should exude joy and passion for the things of God. Are we those who overflow with peace and patience? Do we rest in God's control over human affairs and not our own? Think here about the traffic jam. Consider the grocery line. The brother and sister in Christ who requires a significant portion of your time. Realizing that all time is a gift, right? Are we kind? Would, or would others describe us as rude, demanding, insistent? Do we love the good? Do we promote the good? Do we defend the good? Are we gentle with others? Are we faithful? Do we keep our word? And do we demonstrate self-control? Are our appetites ordered or are they more disordered? Have the good gifts that God's given us become idols in our hearts? Now, I know that was kind of rapid fire, but I wanted you to get a feel, this, this overall character of what the Spirit, how it works in us. It produces a certain kind of character, the fruit of the Spirit. Now, again, we're all still a work in progress. We all desperately need God's daily transforming grace so that we can bear fruit that's fitting for those who belong to the kingdom of God. Both our regeneration and our sanctification their works of the Spirit. Think about this. What an amazing, glorious truth that, that the Spirit of God works in us to help us see the beauty and glory of Jesus. That, that's what the Spirit does. He, he did it at salvation, right? When we first came to faith. And every day when I can say, I've been crucified with Christ, or those who belong to Christ have, have crucified the flesh, that's the Spirit working in me. And so... We give praise to God as the Spirit helps us to see Jesus. And then, as believers, those who have the Spirit indwelling in us, we can help others see Jesus. It's a beautiful picture. Okay, let's move on. Verse 24 now. Paul continues here 
all this still fitting under the point that those who are made alive by the Spirit keep in step with the Spirit. In verse 24, this just stood out to me. Just a beautiful nugget of truth. And those who belong to Christ Jesus, they've crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Those who belong to Christ. I think this verse is so crucial for Paul. We, we see this in other places in his writings when we think about transformation. Transformation for the believer depends upon an accurate understanding of identity. Right actions flow out of a rightly understood identity. Have you ever belonged to, say, a team or a club and, and the mere fact of being part of the team changed your behavior? I know Dylan right now is on a basketball team. Daniel's on a basketball team. I remember playing basketball in high school. One of the standards we had for away games is we always had to dress up. Now, I didn't like that very much as a teenager. I still don't like dressing up that much now. Um, but I did it. Why? Because it was expected. And that's what the team did. When we got on that bus and we went out to eat and when we showed up in that gym, we, we looked good. We looked like we were there for something, to play hard, to play to win. It indicated that we took things seriously. College Greek life is another example where young men, young women often dress and act in particular ways because that's what it means to be part of a particular fraternity or sorority. There's numerous examples like this. I could go on. On a human level where just being part of something, belonging, changes our behavior, right? But think about this. On a spiritual scale, spiritually speaking, the only way we can bear spiritual fruit is if we're given a completely new heart. A dead tree cannot bear fruit. And this is what's happened for us in Christ. We've been given new spiritual hearts that now beat for God. With the imputed righteousness of Christ, we now each have spiritual IVs, if you will, that are filled with pools and pools of righteousness that we can draw from that never run out. We can always draw from the source of Christ's righteousness, the very righteousness of Christ. As believers in Christ, we're those who've crucified the flesh because we are those who belong to God. We now have the privilege of belonging. We now in Christ have a seat at the table. I love the line we sing in that song, Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table, Jesus, thank you. Consider this again, friend, brother, sister in Christ. You were once an enemy of God. And now in Christ, you have a seat at the Father's table. Pastor Tim, a couple weeks ago, he gave the example, the analogy of a wealthy farmer and his oldest son who decided to give away some of his inheritance to the indentured servants. Um, you know, how, how foolish would it be in light of this new status for those servants to continue to settle for lives as servants, just eating crumbs off the table when now there's a place set for them at the table. And this is essentially, it's what we do when we settle for sin over Christ. We eat the crumbs when there's steak on the table. If you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, if you've never come to the point where you've repented and trusted Christ for salvation, you, friend, are an enemy of God. This may sound harsh, unloving, unchristian, but it's true. 
before you get to the good news of the gospel, you have to accurately and thoroughly deal with the bad news. The bad news is that our hearts are deceitful and desperately sick. And the bad news is, is there's nothing we can do about it. The bad news is, is because of our sin, we all rightly deserve the wrath and judgment of God. That's the bad news. But the good news is this. Christ took our place. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For those who repent and believe, there's justification, there's peace, there's the hope of eternal life. There's a promise of an indwelling, empowering, transforming spirit that will come and take residence in your heart. That, friend, is good news. Okay. Paul wraps up this section, or at least I think in these last two verses we get a wrap up. 25 and 26. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. He continues this same reasoning here. The one who's been given life by the Spirit is now indwelt by the Spirit is to now walk with the Spirit. There is no other way. It makes no sense to fall back into patterns of relating that are of the flesh. To live in the flesh is to experience arrogance, pride, envy, a general desire to just stir up by provoking, to get under the skin of others. And friend, if this is your desire, it's ungodly. It's not of the Spirit of God. Stirring up trouble within the body of Christ is a serious offense. It's very dangerous. And, and on the same token, almost like two sides of the same coin, provoke and then envy. If you envy what another has, if you envy their gifts or talents, that's also very dangerous. It'll eat at you. And if not careful, you'll start to relate in ways that are unloving towards that person. It will lead to division within the body. So both envy and this ungodly provoking promote disunity. And the appropriate response to both is a response of repentance. Paul then moves further as he enters into chapter 6 to fleshing out how the Spirit-empowered life transforms relationships within the body of Christ. Verse 1 there of chapter 6, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. My second point that I'm drawing from this verse is that those who are made alive by the Spirit, they demonstrate a willingness to gently restore. Here Paul is clear. The sin is clear and obvious. It, it's, a, it's an obvious sin. It's, it's a pattern of sinful behavior. It's not just something we speculate or perceive. The language Paul uses, if anyone is caught in any transgression, it makes that clear that it's obvious and undeniable. And this word here, spiritual, that doesn't have to do with some kind of special elite status, but instead just the importance of being spiritually mature and wise and discerning. Uh, hence being led and empowered by the Spirit when we go to restore a brother or sister in Christ. A humble posture is absolutely important. The verb here that we get for restore, it, it has a sense of a medical term to, to set a fractured bone. That, that's essentially what it means. So think about, okay, when, when your doctor sets your fracture, it's essential that, that he or she set it so that there can be healing, but also that it's not done too abruptly. So for us, a great deal of wisdom, a great deal of discernment needs to go into the restoration of a brother or sister caught in sin. 
Recall again, this is all within a context of love. To avoid restoring is to avoid loving when there's sin in a brother or sister's life. And Paul makes it clear here as well. We also have to be cautious when we restore a brother or sister. We also have the potential ourselves to get pulled in. You know, that could be getting pulled into the same sin or, you know, how they respond. If it's not a uh, Christ-like response, then our, our response could be sinful based on their response. So, so Paul says, be cautious lest you too be tempted. Ken Sandy, I know I've mentioned this in the CGG class a lot as, as this comes up, but he provides a really helpful resource here uh, for churches, for Christians, on resolving conflict in a biblical manner. It's called The Peacemaker, A Biblical Guide to Resolving Conflict. And in his book, he makes four main points uh, to think about when you're aiming at restoring a brother and si or sister. The first is to glorify God. Glorify God. To say, God, I want you to be pleased in this. Whatever the outcome, my aim is to bring you glory. Then he says, get the log out of your own eye. Before you go to address the speck that may be there in a brother or sister's eye, look, look at yourself first. Get the log out of your own eye. Then go and humbly, gently restore. And then a final point, which I think is real helpful as well. Go and be reconciled. Don't let it now lead to a state of awkwardness. Go and be reconciled. We know from Matthew 18 that, that the way we do this is privately first and then we move further if necessary. And this is why for us at Cornerstone, biblical church discipline falls within our core value of biblical church membership. As members here, we commit to know and to be known by our brothers and sisters in Christ. Just as in marriage, where we see the worst of our spouse's sin, so too as we spend time together as the family of God, we are inevitably going to see each other's sin. We will sin and hurt each other. And the most loving thing we can do for one another is be willing to restore, to do so in a manner that demonstrates humility. And then Paul gives a final example here of, of how we uh, fulfill the law, how we aim to get our brothers and sisters to Christ as we bear their burdens, when we bear the burdens of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Look with me at verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So that's kind of why I've grouped all these verses together. You get there at the end of where Pastor Tim stopped last time in 13. Um, or actually 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. Love your neighbor as yourself. And now here Paul in in chapter 6, verse 2 says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to, be, to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each is going to have to bear his own load. My point here is that those who are made alive by the Spirit of God bear the burdens of their brothers and sisters in Christ. I think a helpful initial point here is to realize the motivation of why we bear the burdens of our brothers and sisters is because our Savior bore our burdens, right? He bore our burdens on the tree, so therefore we go and we bear the burdens of our brothers and sisters in Christ as well. I think something here that is so important to say as well is that if, if we're going to truly bear the burdens of others, we have to get ourselves out of the way. Let me say that again. If you're going to bear the burdens of a brother and sister in Christ, in a sense, you have to get yourself out of the way. 
Empathy involves placing yourself in the shoes of another, seeing things from their perspective, feeling what they feel, thinking like they think. E even if your experience or you went through something similar, uh, you felt differently, that at least initially doesn't matter. We first meet them where they are. Now this doesn't mean you have to condone or, or agree with a certain sinful attitude or action, but I think you do at least initially need to identify with where the other person is. So this means maybe holding off on sharing your experience and, and what you learned. There will be a time and place for that. But I think too often this is where we immediately go when we're seeking to bear others' burdens. It's far more effective to see and identify with where a person is coming from and then to call it sin than to just call it sin from the very outset. I can give a personal example here in my marriage where oftentimes my sweet wife will clue me in when I go to fix it mode too quickly. And I, you know, she, because a lot of my time I spend in the counseling office, and, and empathy is what you have to do. That's at the heart of good counseling. So she'll often say, okay, Mr. Counselor, I don't, I don't want you to fix it right now. Don't solve my problem. I just want you to hear me. I want you to feel what I'm feeling. I want you to know where I'm coming from. That's so important. It's important in marriage. It's important in any relationship um, where we're seeking to bear someone else's burdens. We have to put our needs aside. Life in a fallen world, it's hard. It's real hard. We all have real burdens. There's the burden of battling sin, the burden of raising children, the burden of caring for an aging parent. New, numerous burdens we face in a fallen world. Hence why this verse is so important. We all desperately need burden bearers. Someone that we can call on when sin's gotten a hold of us. Uh, someone that can pray for us, counsel us. Somebody to take the kids for the afternoon if you need it. Or to run to the store for you when necessary. Bearing others' burdens is so important. It's so needed. And a final point here is I grouped these last three verses, three to five, together because I think it relates here to bearing one another's burdens. I think what Paul's doing here at first, I don't know about you, but these verses, let me read them again. For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. I don't know about you, but initially for me, that was a little confusing. I didn't quite, Paul, what are you saying here? I'm, I'm a little confused. But I think what he's after is, if I don't get myself out of the way, when I'm trying to bear the burdens of a brother or sister in Christ, pride is going to get in the way of bearing their burdens. This is why he continues as he does in verse 3. As we look at the burdens of others, as we sit with them in their sin and try to help them move from their sin, it's possible for us to look down on them, to think we're something. And this is deceptive because really we're just lying to ourselves about our true condition. Again, it's one that's never going to measure up to the standard of the law. And then in verse 4, it seems that Paul, on the face of it, is advocating for a certain type of pride. And I think in a sense he is. What I'm going to suggest here is a distinction between pride or conceit and just honest assessment. Conceit leads to us thinking we're better than others or us feeling inferior to others. But honestly assessing ourselves, it allows us to acknowledge, I have strengths, I have weaknesses, I have gifts. Um, and it's only the person who's secure in Christ that can do this. 
as we honestly assess our own weaknesses and shortcomings, we realize our only hope is Christ. Some further thoughts here on bearing the burdens of others. It, it may mean hard work. It may mean regular meeting, regular accountability. It means getting involved in the messiness of people's lives. But I know I can say that others that have done this, whether it be just the encouragement of a friend, a brother in Christ, somebody to call me out when they see sin in my life, it could be an encouraging, powerful sermon. There's so many ways that the Spirit of God works in my life, in your life, um, to, to help us here. When we do this, we have to risk. There's a certain risk we take when we open ourselves to others. But I would, I would categorize it as appropriate God-glorifying risk when we, when we go ahead and expose our others and our sin to the light. Sin loves the darkness, but we, when we bring it out into the light, it loses its power. And then finally here, verse 5, each will have to bear his own load. This is helpful as well because we've got to realize we each have individual responsibilities, obligations. There are things we're responsible for that no one else can ultimately be responsible for. Uh, examples here, our, our service, our devotion to God. Each of us are, give, are going to give an account on the day of judgment. Uh, you can reference here Romans 14, 12. Therefore, it's so important as we seek to care for one another, we have to consistently evaluate, consistently look at, okay, what is under my purview of responsibility, if you will, and then what is under that other person's? What ultimately do they need to own? Just as we can't avoid the messiness of entering the burdens of another, we cannot fall into the temptation of owning what's not ours to own. Each will have to bear his own load. As we conclude, as we wrap up, let me just repeat our title again. Sons and daughters of the King are those who are continually amazed by grace. We never get over it. It continues to amaze us every day. And we're those who are consistently marked by our love. I started the message with a few questions. Now, as you go and dive in more into 2014, what is it that you're going to desire to be known for? I hope and pray that in light of these verses, we individually and as a church family commit with God's help to this kind of distinctively Christian love. I pray that we cooperate wholeheartedly with the Spirit of God in aiming to get one another to Christ. Whatever that takes, I will most love you. You will most love me as you help me get to Christ. There's nothing more loving than to help someone see Christ as a great treasure worth giving everything up for.